0: Let's take our Bibles and turn back to the book of Philippians. We're in chapter 3 again, starting in verse 7. And these five verses, I'm so excited to study them this morning. They are an amazing and insightful passage of Scripture. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. And what I love about this Scripture and what is really um, challenging for us this morning is that if we really trusted, listen now, if we really trusted the truth of these verses, and we really yielded ourselves to them, it would literally change everything in our lives. Let me say it again just in case you were turning, and thank you for bringing your Bibles. If we really trusted the truth that's in these verses, and we really fully yielded ourselves to them and lived them, It would change everything in our lives. Now, that's a bold statement, and it seems maybe like hyperbole, but it's not. It's absolutely true. When we live by Philippians 3, 7 to 11, it will completely alter the way we think, the way we trust God, and the way we live every single day, and it will be the catalyst for a spiritual power that only comes this way. There is spiritual power that God has available for us. He told us that. Jesus told us that when he left in Acts 1.8. He said, the Spirit's coming, and you're going to receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. There is spiritual power in our lives. Remember, we talked earlier about being discouraged and kind of defeated. There is power available for your life and for my life that, that only comes this way. Now, I hope that excites us this morning. I'm excited. If you aren't, I'm just going to be excited for all of us. Because Jesus didn't defeat sin and death, and we don't trust Him with our lives for us to be worldly and emotionally weak and spiritually anemic. That's not why Christ died, and it's certainly not why He rose again. Jesus said, It will be better that I am leaving. That seems hard to fathom, except He says... That means the Spirit's coming. And where I walked with you every day, now the Spirit's going to indwell you, and He's going to empower you, so you have everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. But the secret to that, the secret to that power and that understanding is our acceptance of this truth in these verses. So we want to study them very closely this morning. I want to encourage you, have a pen, have a piece of paper, um, I want to get some pads in the, in the uh, pews eventually, even though we have the notes on the back of the bulletin, but some of you write a lot. But, but let's really interact now with the truth this morning. Don't just sit passively and listen, although you listen very well. Let's, let's write some things down, because the Spirit wants to teach us this morning. Paul's speaking here from very personal experience. He's lived through uh, a, a change in his thinking that is significant, especially in light of what we studied last week. You remember in in verses 1 to 6, he talked about his credentials, his spiritual resume, so to speak. He said, I'm a pure Jew. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm the highest level of the Pharisees that you can get. People look up to me. They respect me, uh, pretending to obeying the law. There's nobody like me. I'm exemplary. He's not bragging. He's just being honest. And he says, I'm so zealous, I was so zealous for for Judaism, I was so zealous for the law that that I even started to persecute the early church and kill Christians because I wanted to not only stop the movement of Christianity, but I also wanted to preserve Judaism. So he says, when you look at my resume, I've got everything that you could possibly need. But something changed in me. When I met Christ, when I trusted in Christ as my Savior, I came to a very stark realization, and we looked at this last week. It's a couple of verses before our text. He says, I, I've, I've understood now, I get it, that, I, that there can be no confidence in the flesh. That all the works I did, all the things that I did to prove myself and prove that I was righteous I'm still short because I have failed to be perfectly righteous. See, there were, 100, there were 613 laws in the Torah. The law itself, broad word, was made up of 613 ritualistic laws. And while Paul says, I did very well in obeying them, I know good and well that not one person can make the claim that they have fulfilled every one of them without fail, including me. So knowing I can't fulfill the law and then seeing what Christ has done and what Christ has taught and then what he's embodied by, by being the living sacrifice, by being the Lamb of God that, that goes to the cross and dies for our sins and rises again to defeat sin, having looked at my own inadequacy and then having seen the adequacy of Christ, I get the fact that everything's changed. Paul's whole perspective changed, and that leads him to this passage. It leads him to to five verses of deeply practical doctrine. Let's read them together. Start in verse 7 in chapter 3. Whatsoever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection From the dead. Now, verses seven to eight contain one of the most difficult truths that we have to accept and live. I would suggest to you that that of all the truths in scripture that come down to practical application, that that this would be at least in the top five of most difficult. Here's what it is: whatever we view and in life as gain now has to be counted as loss. Whatever we see as valuable, whatever our humanity screams and says, this is right, this is good, you want this, you need to attain this, whatever we count as gain, as believers, now has to be counted as loss. And here's why. Because there is a far greater value in knowing and living for Christ. Having Him as our Savior, having Him as our Lord, living by His Spirit, yielding ourselves to His will, rejecting our old self, rejoicing in our new life. All of that is exponentially better than what our flesh tells us is best. And not only is it important for us to understand that, it is necessary now for us to live it for the sake of serving Christ. Now, hearing that truth, we then have to ask ourselves, well, that, what, what is going to compete against that? What's going to fight against that? Because we all know that we're in a spiritual battle. We all know that our flesh uh, rebels against our spirit. If the two are, are different, if you've been saved, you have a new spirit, but you still have flesh. So, so as those two are doing battle, what's the competition? What, it's always good to know your opponent, right? Right. When a football team plays and they've got a game the next week, they're studying their opponent, they're watching film, they're making notes, they're, they're tracking the trends and the, and, the, and the tendencies, and they're looking for any advantage that they can get. Well, a lot of times in our Christian walk, we kind of say, well, I'm in a spiritual battle and I don't know what to do, but we're not taking the playbook and saying, well, here's the film. Here's what we're supposed to do. Here's how we learn. Here's how we gain knowledge. Here's how we understand what the Spirit's saying. And looking at the tendencies of the enemy and the trends and the patterns, I now have the equipment to fight that. So we need to know the competition. Because the text tells us that this spiritual competition is in our hearts and minds for what we see as our priorities. The Bible says no man can serve two masters. You can't serve two masters. You can't live for yourself and live for Christ. The two are diametrically opposed to each other. We always talk about kind of walking the fence. There really is no fence. Either we live for Christ or we live for ourselves. They, they are opposed to each other. The Bible also says that a double-minded man is what? Unstable in all his ways. So there's no way to live with confidence And stability this week, if you're trying to balance your spiritual life and finesse the old life and kind of meld the two together, all that's gonna bring is is confusion and inconsistency and hypocrisy. So we hear what scripture says. Jesus says, if you're lukewarm, it disgusts me. I want to spit you out of my mouth it's a compromise and a disingenuous spirituality. So so you can't serve two masters. You're you're unstable in all your ways if you're double-minded. And if you try to sit there in the warm and fuzzy middle, it disgusts Christ. So we've got to choose, like Elijah says on Mount Carmel. Choose this day who you're going to serve. And as we serve Christ, then there are going to be five desires and priorities of the human heart, they're gonna fight us. That are gonna go against us, that are gonna be opposed to us. And the enemy now is going to to incite us to crave these more than anything else. Because he knows that if we can crave the desires of our heart, rather than a desire for Christ, that he will gain ground. So get your pens ready. We're gonna write these down. There are gonna be five things. And I want us, as we go through, as I'm talking, honestly assess how much they appeal to you. And I, want to, I would even encourage you, give it a grade of 1 to 10. 1 is the lowest, 10 is the highest. All right. So as we go through these five things, say, Lord, show me how much this appeals to me. Look into your own heart and mind. Be honest with yourself and say, well, that's a 5, or that's a 3, or that's a 14, even though it's 1 to 10, but that's, that's 14 for me, okay? Number one, we crave power. We crave power. This is one of the most basic human desires, to be in control, to dominate, to be at the top of the heap. All through history, people have desired to have power in everything from uh, trying to rule the world to uh, running countries to uh, being the head of a successful business to being in charge in a relationship to whatever. Roman emperors declared themselves to be gods. Egyptian pharaohs said that we are representatives of God. Dictators will tell you that their authority is unquestioned. You can't challenge them. They're in charge. They're in control. And you better like it because you don't have a choice. John Acton was a historian in the 19th century, and he Uh, described the danger of this. And you've heard this phrase before. He said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And then he added, great men are almost always bad men. See, that's the problem with craving control. It's not a spiritual quality. Listen very carefully now. Craving control is not a spiritual quality. Craving control is a spiritual desire that elevates us instead of exalting Christ. And that can't be tolerated in our lives because it damages everything it touches. When we crave control, when we crave power, it it hurts other people and it hurts us. And there are multiple examples of this in history from, from Richard Nixon to Alexander the Great to Stalin to Hitler. Stalin and Hitler killed millions and millions of people to be in control. So we crave power, number one. Second, we crave popularity. Popularity is a minor kind of uh, a, a more subtle form of power. It's, it's the subtle, strong desire to be known and, and looked up to and, and, and eventually modeled. Now, every one of us, I don't care if you're the world's biggest introvert, every one of us wants some level of prominence. It is a basic human desire to be be known and loved. There's nothing wrong with that. But what's happening in our culture with the explosion of social media and the explosion of of information is that now uh, prominence has been redefined by by valuing how many followers you have. If you're on Facebook or Twitter or Pinterest or Snapchat or or Instagram or all the other things that are out there and many different forms of, of social media, internet, TV, whatever the case may be. It's all about how many people are following you. And then society sets a standard of what you should want. The entertainment industry tells you this is what perfect looks like. So they photograph models and they airbrush them and they use the computer to slim them down and make them have no imperfections and to look absolutely flawless. So when you're standing in the checkout line at the supermarket with your eggs and cheese, you look over and go, wow, look at that guy's abs or look at that girl's face and body. They're absolutely beautiful. I feel like a complete whatever, right? Have you ever had that thought as you're standing with your eggs and cheese, thinking I probably shouldn't get eggs and cheese because it won't make me have abs like that? Every time I stand there, I go, never in my life have I looked like that. I never will look like that until I get to heaven. I hope God gives me some really good abs because I will never look like that. That's why I run slowly in softball. But that's False. That's not reality. In fact, it's been interesting. Some of these models are now putting out pictures of themselves. This is what I look like, not airbrushed. And you go, wait a second. That looks like us. Why are they making $45,000 a day to get airbrushed? Airbrush me. I could look really good airbrushed. Give me some abs, nice hair, take the gray out. I'd be awesome. I think I'm going to change careers at this point, maybe. And there's an entertainment industry which says, oh, this is what it looks like to be famous. Don't you want to be us? Don't don't you want to be like us? We're famous and we're wealthy. You know, it's interesting. There's an actor named Joseph Gordon levitt and he described it this way. He said, and I thought this was very honest, celebrity doesn't have anything to do with art or craft. You know, celebrities always going, well, it's all about the art and it's all about the craft. That's baloney, all right? He says it's about being rich and thinking you're better than everybody else. That's true. And here's the thing. Even the most popular celebrities continually prove that their lives are messed up and unfulfilled. And you have somebody as world-renowned as Elvis or Michael Jackson or Robin Williams, and they die a lonely, self-destructive death Because popularity never fulfills its promises. So we want power and we want popularity. Third, we want prestige. Prestige is a variation of popularity because prestige has more to do with gaining status and being respected because of your knowledge or skill or innovation. Anybody can be popular. The Kardashians proved that, right? Anybody can be known. Anybody can be popular. But being valued for your contributions is a strong desire. And that may be something as as pure and simple as, well, I work really hard and I want my boss to notice me and and value me uh, that I have worth to the company. Or it can be very overt and selfish where people become leaders in their industry, and then they leverage that to have a powerful influence on the culture that they don't deserve to have. You want a couple names here? Donald Trump, Al Sharpton, Tiger Woods, the list goes on and on. Power, popularity, prestige. Fourth, we want possessions. Come on, we all do, right? Nod your head. We all want possessions. The Bible says that the love of money Not money. The love of money is the root of all evil. And loving money takes a lot of different forms in our culture. But the bottom line is that we want stuff. We live in an envy culture. We live in a world where advertising always pushes us to want more. And we get jealous and resentful of those who have what we don't have. And if you don't believe that's true, just ask yourself how much you resented anybody this week that posted pictures of Florida or Mexico or anywhere else warm while it was sleeting on Friday. Am I right? Am I right? I am, aren't I? As I'm at the mall Friday late afternoon and it's sleeting and I'm on the phone going, I can't believe it's sleeting on April whatever doesn't matter, it just says April, which means it shouldn't be sleeting. And then I'm looking at my friends in the south who are posting pictures of palm trees and I'm trying hard to be sanctified. But listen, that that resentment, that envy is minor compared to wanting a bigger house and a bigger car and a bigger paycheck and the latest technology. Have you ever realized that it's no coincidence that the Apple logo is a picture of Genesis 3? It's a picture of a bite taken out of the fruit because it's always been our desire to want what we don't and can't have. So we want possessions. And in the worst form, the desire for possessions is a desire to be envied by other people because it goes back to the craving for power and prestige. They all fit together. Possessions don't bring joy or peace. I looked at a list last night of 10 billionaires who have killed themselves because they didn't have any joy in their possessions. I mean, people who made more than you and I will ever fathom, more than the rest of us will make combined for all of our lives together, they, they made more. They killed themselves because they didn't have any joy. Number five, we crave people. We crave people, we, we, we want to be in relationships, we want intimacy, we want to be part of a social group. All of us want to belong, all of us want some form of companionship, and that's not bad, that is an innate desire. But when it becomes an overwhelming priority, especially when it's driven by, by some form of self-interest, then the variations of this become very destructive somebody cheats on their spouse because they're they're full of lust and they're full of a desire for power and control and they're selfish or somebody makes moral compromises in their business to get ahead or, or makes a moral compromise with their friends to try to fit in. Or, or someone damages someone else's re- uh, uh, reputation to try to infiltrate a social group because they can't get in unless that person gets out, gets out of the way. So maybe I'll cut them at the knees a little bit so I can fit in and people think I'm cool. We still count these things as gain. And we justify them without reservation because the desire for for people aligns with the desire for power and popularity and prestige and possessions, and those become a driving priority in our lives that then gets distorted. Now, look back at your list, and and if you gave yourself grades, add them up. We're all going to share it. No, I'm just kidding. Is your total number in the teens? or as in, in the 30s and 40s. If you look at that and honestly assess it, and nobody's going to see this, you can tear it up when you walk out, but, but when you look at that, do you say, based on this, based on these five things, these desires are dominating my life. See, we tend to think, if I only had, how many times this week did you think that sentence, or did you utter that sentence? If I only had this, Where if I only had that, I would be more fulfilled and more content. But let me tell you, that's a lie from the enemy, because the enemy drives discontentment. He tries to create an insatiable longing in us for more and different and better, especially when it comes to satisfying ourselves rather than pleasing the Lord. And that's a false contentment. It stands in contrast to the verse we'll look at in a couple of weeks in chapter 4, verse 11. Chapter 4, verse 11 says, I've learned to be content in all things. That describes a, a, a peace and a joy that is supernatural. And yet, listen, that peace and joy that's supernatural is available in our everyday life. The Lord, 28, 29 years ago, confronted me with the verse, Philippians 4.11, we'll talk about it in a couple weeks, so I don't want to give that away too much. But But he taught me that, look, if you can't live with this, if you can't desire that supernatural contentment that I am willing to give you every single day, then you don't really trust me. So how do we get it? How do we get to where Paul's going to go in Philippians 4 where he says, think only on things that are pure and holy and right and just and be content in all things and recognize that my God will supply all your needs according to riches, glory, in Christ Jesus. How do we get there? Well, chapter 3, verse 7 is the linchpin. Chapter 3, verse 7 is where it all rests. Whatever we count as gain must be counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In fact, all things must be counted as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. That tells us, when you read that verse, that tells us that not only do these cravings compete with our spiritual health and our maturation, but they actually hinder us from knowing Christ more fully. So we have to reshape our thinking. We have to now decide what we're going to lose. And we lose it because we know there's a greater value in what we gain. Think about the list of benefits. I hate to use that word, but, le- but just allow it because you know what I mean. Think about the list of benefits that we get because God loves us. We get deliverance from sin. We get a new spirit. We're sanctified. We're given new desires. We get spiritual clarity. We get God's leading and God's will. We're filled with confidence. We're filled with hope. We're given assurance. We're shown His mercy. We rest in His presence. And we get unbelievable love. That's just the smallest of all the blessings that God gives us Because we know Christ, and because he says, because I love you, and because I'm gracious, and because I'm merciful, I'm going to adopt you, I'm going to declare you my child, and get this, because this is amazing, I'm going to make you a joint heir with Christ. How can that be, that some just person like Paul Rhodes can be told by God, I love you, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to rise again. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to adopt you. And then you're going to be a joint heir with Jesus Christ for what I have. And by the way, I'm going to fill you with my spirit so you have power. Listen, if you're not, if you're not engaged by that truth this morning, if that just doesn't make you just jump inside, then the spirit's going to have to help you. How could anything in this life that we desire compared to that, that's why Paul says, look back at verse 8, that's why he says, I count all this stuff, all these earthly desires as rubbish. The word there, especially if every King James, you know this, the word there literally means dung. Figuratively, it means anything that's worthless And detestable. So let's really get down. Let's not sugarcoat it because Paul doesn't. He says the contrast between what we gain for living for Christ and what we get from living for ourselves is the difference between gold and manure. You want to know what living for yourself will bring you? You want to know what living for ourselves and living for the world and and fulfilling our desires and getting those five cravings and and I've got these things and I'm wonderful. You know what that is? That's manure. He says it all fades compared to the surpassing knowledge uh, knowledge of knowing Christ. But notice, look back at the verse because there's a key word here. He says this is how we have to view it. Paul says, I count it as rubbish. In other words, as I'm tallying up all the things in my life that are important and precious to me, I'm not going to include any of the things that I gain from mankind, any of the things that society and culture and the devil tells me are valuable. Those aren't going in the valuable pile. Those are going in the rubbish pile. Those need to be burned Because they are worthless. And I need to not keep them any more than you would keep something. We we came down, let me give you an example. I hope this is of the Lord. We came down yesterday in our house and we're like, there's something smelling here. And we have a we have a little thing that holds fruit and vegetables. And I'm kind of rooting through there and going, something smells in here. It just doesn't I mean it smelled bad. I mean when we're talking bad, I'm talking bad. So last night, we're going to bed, and Julie and I are kind of in the kitchen. We're going, man, that smell is not gone. And I've been throwing away potatoes and apples and all kinds of stuff. I'm like, I don't care about the money. I just, this smell is going to kill me, all right? So, so I'm throwing stuff. We throw away a red onion. We're like, good, the problem's solved. We go to bed. We wake up this morning. I come down, and, and I don't even cross the stairs, and the aroma hits me. I'm like, it is not gone. She comes down and she grabs a bag of potatoes that I've looked at maybe 30 times and smelled 30 times, and she goes, Oh, this is it. And she's holding it, she's like gagging. She would allow me to tell, she's like gagging, like, I can't do this. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of laughing and feeling bad for her at the same time. You know, you do that as a spouse. Like, I feel really bad for you, but that's really funny. She's like, ah, I love and I'm like, it's the potatoes. Now I'm not gonna allow those potatoes to sit in my kitchen. I'm certainly not going to put them in my bedroom. Would I want to sit and watch TV later tonight with the potatoes on the couch sitting next to me going, I'm so glad you're here potatoes, because I love you and I value you, and you're so wonderful and you bring such joy to my life. I know I'm being incredibly facetious, but that's the point here. Rubbish, trash, nastiness, dung, manure, that's what he says this life gives us. And we, hear it, We hold on to it and say, well, that's valuable. And it's like walking around with a bag of bad potatoes that stinks to high heaven and going, well, I have to have this. He says, knowing Christ is a breath of fresh air. Knowing Christ is joy and contentment for your spirit. Knowing Christ is pure and holy and wonderful, and we want to hold on to that nasty bag of potatoes and say, this is more valuable than Jesus. Listen, I'm not making this up. That's what the verse says. And we've got to look at that, and we've got to be confronted by that, because instead of continuing to hold on to these things, the Bible's telling us we have to throw them away. I didn't leave them in the kitchen trash. I took the bag out. I didn't leave it in the garage. I walked it right out to the trash can and put it in and made sure the lid was sealed because I don't ever want to smell it again. God bless my trash man because on Friday, he gets to smell it. I don't ever want that smell in my house again. That's sanctification. I don't ever want the stink of sin in this house. Again, because the Bible says this is the house of the Holy Spirit. Come on, that's good. So we have to make a choice. Now, I think we've explained why this needs to be done. I think it's obvious. It drags us down spiritually and it distracts us from holiness and discouraging our spirit. But, but the Bible never ends on a negative So while Paul is saying, and we tend to focus, I've always, I've studied this passage, I don't know how many times. I'm not bragging, I just love Philippians. And I've always seen this passage from the negative until I get to verse 10. And then God says, here is the value. Yeah, you got rid of the stinky potatoes. But here's what I'm going to give you. There is a high value to gain out of this transaction. This is what I call spiritual reciprocity. Exchanging one thing for another and both sides benefit. Here's the benefit. Our old self loses its power. And that's beneficial to us because it is so dangerous when it has power. The only good thing about our old self is when it's dead. Hear that again. The only good thing about our old self, it's when it's dead. So it is very beneficial to our spirit that self loses here. And as self loses, look at the other side. Now our new self gains Christ, which is awesome because we need more of Christ. Do you need more of Christ this week? I do. I need much more of Christ this week. I need Christ to control and dominate my life. Why? Because I'm a failure and God is sufficient. So he says there's a reciprocity here. You're going to lose something and you're going to gain something. And you're going to benefit in both ways. Now what's the value of what God gives us? Look at verse 9. He says by gaining Christ, we're found in Him. This is the allusion to the parables of the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost prodigal son. All who were sought after by the owner and found. Listen, when we sing amazing grace, what do we sing? I once was lost, but now I'm what? Tell me. Found. Jesus doesn't leave us out in the spiritual nether regions and say, sorry, you're a sinner. You failed. All sin produces death. Can't help you. You're lost. He says, I'm going to come and seek and to save that which is lost. I'm going to find you. And what I'm going to give you is so much better. Look at the second thing in verse 9. By gaining Christ, we then gain a righteousness that isn't fulfilled by us keeping the law. Because we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But through faith in Christ, because neither is there salvation any other, salvation only comes by admitting our own inadequacy and our failure and trusting with all our heart that God will forgive and will reconcile us to himself only through Christ. And when he does that, we go from spiritually filthy to spiritually holy. And listen, I, 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 I am convinced that that is an amazing truth an amazing truth that we don't always believe sometimes we tell ourselves that sin still has power and control over us that we just can't help ourselves that I'm uh, Paul, I have temptation, and, and you don't know what I'm going through and how hard the, the devil tempts me. And, and holiness is a nice, idealistic concept, but it certainly isn't a practical reality in my life. Listen, Paul just said, I have no confidence in my flesh, but I have gained Christ. And because I have gained Christ, look at the next phrase, I have the righteousness which comes from God. If you trust Christ this morning, if you know Christ to save you from sin, listen to Romans 6. It says, you are no longer slaves to sin, therefore do not let it reign in your body. That is not an idealistic concept, it is a reality and it is a choice that we have the power to make and the the power to live out. Sin no longer has dominion. I'm saved. I gave my life to Christ in 1974. And while I'm still a sinner, sin has no more power, no more control, no more dominion over me. If I yield to it, it's my choice. God gives me a way of escape every single time. He gives me His Spirit to tell me that's wrong. He gives me His Word to show me it's wrong. He gives me a body of believers to tell me and hold me accountable that it's wrong. So if I choose to do it at that point, it's on me. But I'm not controlled by it anymore. If you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, I want to tell you that verse is for you. You no longer have to be a slave to sin. You no longer have to be under bondage. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners and we're all condemned and worthy of spiritual death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Tell me the rest of the phrase. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you trust in him this morning and you can do it right now, your life will go from spiritual life to spiritual death in a moment for all eternity. That's only possible because Christ permanently defeated sin and death when he rose in the grave. And that's what Paul, let's bring it to a conclusion. That's what Paul talks about in verse 10. He shows that what Christ has done is now given to us What we count, when when we count what seems to be gain as loss, and we willingly suffer that loss because we know those cravings are rubbish, then we gain Christ. He finds us, he gives us righteousness, and then he allows us and requires us to experience three things. These are in verse 10 and 11, and we're going to finish with this. He allows us and requires us to experience the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, and conformity to his death so that we may know new life. Now, resurrection power, number one, is unlike anything else. The power of heaven that was able to overcome the grip of death now resides in us. We're going to sing a a, a song we've never sung in 2 weeks called the same power it's awesome i love the song so much i can't stop singing it and what it says is the power that freed christ from the grave now lives in us hear that because of christ as we live for christ we have that power god gives that to us freely but we also second phrase have to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Now we say, why? I thought the power of his resurrection would nullify the fellowship of his sufferings, and I thought we'd be free of that. But We have to ask, how can we understand the joy of deliverance unless we're reminded once in a while what we've been freed from? Because if we're not reminded what we've been free from, we won't appreciate it. The fellowship of his sufferings keeps us humble, and it keeps us broken And it restrains self-sufficiency. Why? Because we will quickly and proudly run back to self-sufficiency at the first chance we get if we're not stopped. You and I need the fellowship of His sufferings every day. Jesus had to endure suffering to deliver us from our sin. So for us to be like Him, we have to share in His sufferings. That's our cross because we couldn't endure the real one. And whenever we say, well, bearing such a burden. No, you're not. You didn't go to the cross. Whenever I feel sorry for myself and I feel like, oh, Lord, i got so much on me, I just can't bear it. The Lord says, yeah, just, just remember what Jesus did. You're just sharing in the fellowship in the sufferings. You, you don't know what suffering is. Christians that are being martyred on the beach you don't know what suffering is. So how do we do this? Look at the last phrase and we're done. By being conformed to his death to attain the resurrection. What does that mean? It means dying to sin. It means it means putting it to death in our life, not giving it any room to breathe, let alone choosing it. Because there's a far greater life instead. It's the new life that's secured by his resurrection which is free and secure and powerful. Again, listen now, listen, it's not about what we lose. The enemy wants to keep replaying that old tape in our mind promising that this time, if we'll just do it, we'll really be happy and we'll be fulfilled and it'll last this time and if you just trust me, I will give you what we want, but we know better. We know that he's a liar, and we know that we can point to what we gain. Just to know Christ would be enough, but then he adds that we're saved, and then he adds that we're claimed by him, and then everything else is graciously given to us. Righteousness, and faith, and power, and his presence, and freedom. This is spiritual reciprocity. You give up something, and you get something. You exchange one thing that's not worth for something that's better. And when we lose the old and we gain the new, then we experience joy. It's an easy equation. It's hard to live.